Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. We're going to talk this week, or in this session, uh, about the Holy Spirit. As I'm recording this, uh, it's the week before Pas uh, Pentecost. Pentecost will be this Sunday. Uh, so we'll have a word of prayer. We're going to jump right in. Father, we thank you. As always, that we can learn your word. We thank you that it's open to us. It's in any number of versions, any understandable. And Lord, just ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us understand more about your Spirit as we prepare ourselves for Pentecost and as we go forward, Father, in our walk with you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk about the distinct personality of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever given any serious thought about that? The personality of the Holy Spirit? I'll explain what I mean. You know, because for me, God the Father as a person makes perfectly good sense. And God the Son as a person, I can understand that a little bit better. But the Holy Spirit's kind of a gray blur. I think it's, that expresses a difficulty that's felt by many Christians, and not just us, I mean throughout history. We believe, you know, at least we try to believe in a triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the personality, the third person of the Trinity, you know, kind of seems blurry. And part of the problem, I think, comes from the nature of biblical revelation it's, itself. You know, we're familiar with father and son because we there are fathers and sons in our human experience they're easy to visualize now spirit that's a whole nother animal human fathers and sons our analogies for father and son in the trinity they have physical bodies concrete appearance their behaviors it's their things we can see but the holy spirit has never assumed a human body and furthermore the Holy Spirit is revealed. The images are light, water, wind, fire, dove. They're all impersonal. They're not personal. Now, in this session, I'm going to do my best to try to help make the Holy Spirit seem less like a blur to you, more like a real person with a distinct and knowable personality. A person of the Trinity that's more accessible to our faith, our reading of Scripture, and our worship. But first... We need to look at some barriers from church history that may keep us from appreciating the personality of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing that we have to get into here is the Arian controversy and long fierce battles in the 4th century over the deity of Christ. Now, the Arian heresy was a debate over the nature of Christ. Principal among its proponents were a guy named Arius and Eusebius. Eusebius. Arius, whose followers were called Arians, hence the name Arian, and it's a, it is a heresy, they felt that God created Christ not of his own matter. Now that meant in Arius's opinion that Christ was not God and not equal to God. And the defense of the deity of Christ was a watershed in the life of the church vital to its very identity. But unfortunately, the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit were overshadowed. They actually were becoming virtual. He was, oh, excuse me, the Holy Spirit was becoming a virtual afterthought in Christian faith. 
Now the original Creed of Nicaea, formulated in 325, strongly affirms the deity of Christ as God from God, light from God, light, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. And by the way, we still have Arians with us. Uh, the most, probably the most familiar one to you would be uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I just want to throw that out for you. Now, the only mention of the Holy Spirit in, the, in that original creed in 325 that was formulated, you know, it's formulated in 325 in Nicaea, when they talked about the Holy Spirit, there was one single line. It said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. There was no reference to the deity, personality, or work of the Spirit. It was only in the expanded form of the creed, which was formulated in 381, which we know as the Nicene Creed, is more attention given to the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is here confessed as the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and Son, who spoke through the prophets. But even with this addition, the Creed speaks more clearly about the Spirit's work in the past, where it says, you know, spoke, spoke through the prophets. It speaks more about the Spirit's work in the past than about the Spirit's present work in the believer's Christian experience. The Creed points to correct belief, not to spiritual experience as the essential mark of Christian identity. Now, the second factor in church history is the growth of the practice of infant baptism after the time of Constantine. By about 600 AD, there were less adult conversions in Western Europe and less people joining the church through adult baptism. In the New Testament, the way a person became a Christian was through a conscious conversion experience. The convert heard a message that included the promise of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 2.38. But only after repenting and being baptized. In the New Testament, early Christian church, receiving the gift was a conscious experience. Adult converts were consciously aware of receiving a gift, and they felt something. The disciples on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.4, the Apostle Paul after his conversion in Acts 9, verses 17 and 18, then the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses 45 and 46, and then the disciples in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verses 2 to 6. They all had some form of conscious awareness they had received the promised gift. In the very nature of the procedure, infants receiving water baptism are unlikely to experience or remember such experiences of the Spirit. Now another aspect of infant baptism tending to hinder awareness of the Spirit was the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, which is a common teaching of both Catholic and Orthodox churches. The baptized infant is believed to be born again or regenerated by the act of water baptism performed by the priest. The stain of original sin was presumably washed away. For an adult like Nicodemus in conversation with Jesus in John chapter 3, the language of being born again could be connected with conscious experiences later experienced in conversion, but not so for an infant. The baptized infant, having been made a Christian by this ritual act, did not yet show evidence of conversion or life change. 
Now the growing practice of infant baptism produced a generally diminished awareness of the Holy Spirit among baptized Christians. Diminished experience fostered diminished expectations of such experiences, and diminished expectations in turn reinforced diminished personal experiences of the Spirit. Now the third and fourth contributing factors to the diminishing awareness of the Holy Spirit were the related trends of clericalism and cessationism. Beginning in the third and later centuries, the leaders of worship came increasingly under the control of the ordained clergy, who alone could consecrate the sacred elements in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. The laity's exercise of spiritual gifts in worship, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to chapter 14, was declining. Gifts such as tongues and prophecy that were prominent in the Montanist movement in the latter half of the second century were perceived by many bishops as divisive, possibly heretical, and their use was discouraged. The reaction to the Montanist movement reinforced the trend toward clerical control of the worship services and also contributed to cessationism. That's the belief that manifestations of the Spirit, such as prophecy, tongues, and miracles, were limited to the apostolic age and were no longer to be expected as a continuing part of church life. The manifestation of such charismatic gifts did in fact appear to diminish in many churches beginning in the 4th century, but they were still being documented as late as the 8th century. But nevertheless, cessationist beliefs were dominant throughout the medieval and early modern periods. They were not actually being effectively challenged until the Pentecostal revivals of the 20th and 21st centuries. These cessationist beliefs lowered expectations of conscious experiences of the Holy Spirit and for centuries functioned as self-fulfilling prophecies. You're not expecting it, so you don't get it. And fifth, the modern Pentecostal revivals have raised awareness of the Spirit, but unfortunately have also contributed to negative perceptions of the Spirit. Pentecostal teachings concerning the baptism in the Holy Spirit have been the source of much controversy and division. Some believers have been discouraged from seeking further encounters with the Holy Spirit because of emotional excesses they have witnessed at Pentecostal gatherings. Uh, Jonathan Edwards offered wise counsel based on his observations during the Great Awakening. And what he wrote, and what he said was, to distinguish the good from the bad, don't judge the whole by a part. Edwards was saying, so to speak, don't throw the baby, which is the Holy Spirit, out with the bathwater, which are works of the flesh. Now that sixth, one could mention the linguistic baggage that is accumulated around the Holy Spirit. An archaic language, such as the Holy Ghost, can conjure up images of Casper the Friendly Ghost, or Halloween spirits, rather than the biblically, biblical heavenly dove. Even the word holy, for some, might even trigger negative associations of what, you know, in vernaculars called holy rollers the excesses of exuberant piety. The word spirit may have associations with Eastern and New Age religions for some people, or with being 
spiritual but not religious. And sadly, a common way of misreferring to the Holy Spirit as it, rather than the personal he, can be heard in churches as well as the general culture. You know, we need to refocus and clarify the full and distinct personality of the Holy Spirit. Now, in addition to the historical factors that I've talked about, there are two important obstacles to understanding the Holy Spirit in personal terms. Unlike the Father and the Son, the Spirit does not appear in Scripture with a human face. And second, the images associated with the Spirit, water, wind, fire, light, dove, they're, like as I said earlier, they're impersonal or subpersonal. They don't, they don't obviously suggest the attributes of self-awareness, intelligence, emotion, and will that we normally associate with persons. In our relationships with others, person's face is the most distinct expression of their identity and personality. Father and son, you know, we can easily imagine them with human faces. Because we're familiar with the faces of human fathers and sons. Scripture speaks of God's face shining on us in the erotic benediction. That's Numbers chapter 6, verses 25 and 26. In forming a lasting relationship to a person, you know, we need to put a name and a face together. And our problem with the Holy Spirit is both the name and the face of the Spirit, you know, they seem vague and abstract. With Jesus, imagining a human face for Jesus is possible because the eternal Son took on a human face, took on a human body in the miracle of the Incarnation. Even though the Gospels don't give us a description of Jesus' physical appearance, they do emphatically teach his full humanity. So we can know without a doubt that God did reveal himself through the human face of Jesus. Jesus said to Philip, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9. But in the case of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity did not become incarnate, did not have a human body, could not be seen with a visible face. A contemporary analogy and a biblical resource can help us deal with this, you know, this seemingly obstacle. Two are worth exploring. There's the analogy of the voices of our electronic personal assistants. They manifest intelligence, dynamic interaction. They conjure up human faces in our imagination. Now, number two, the implications of the particular name of the Holy Spirit revealed in the Gospel of John. The paraclete, the defense attorney and helper sent to us by Jesus and the Father. That's John 14, starting at verse 16 through 27, and the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. As to the first one, Siri or Alexa, some other personal assistant, or even the GPS apps on your smartphone that can tell us, you know, turn right in 100 feet. Siri doesn't have a human body, but we hear a human voice. On that faith basis, we can imagine a human voice with that a human face with that voice. Siri is a form of artificial intelligence created by human agents embodied, so to speak, not in carbon-based biological bodies like ours, but in code and algorithms stored on servers. 
Now Siri not only has a distinctive voice that we can recognize, it also seems to have a distinct personality we can relate to over time and which can learn about us through our continuing interactions. The point here is that personality is not necessarily limited to human bodies like ours. The key is intelligence, voice, and interactivity. To that extent, our electronic assistants, our helpers, like the Holy Spirit. They impart wisdom and guidance. We're led by our GPS software as we are led by the Spirit. In both cases, we are justified in, our, in imagining our helpers having human-like faces and distinct personalities. The most important reason for seeing the Holy Spirit with a human face is the name of the Holy Spirit found only in the Gospel and the first epistle of John, the paraclete. The related Greek verb form means to call alongside or to be at someone's side to help them. The Greek word has a variety of connotations. It's been translated variously in different English versions of the Bible as counselor, comforter, advocate, or helper. There's no single word to express the variety of the activities that the Spirit does. But whether counselor, comforter, advocate, helper, or something else is the best translation, all those terms are personal. They evoke the human faces of the people who come alongside us to help us in our times of need. In John chapter 14, Jesus teaches his disciples that after his departure, He's going to send them another counselor or comforter, advocate, helper to be with them forever. And he, that's John 14, 16. The implication of another is that Jesus was the first paraclete to his disciples. The coming Holy Spirit will be the successor. The paraclete will live with them, and, but he'll be in them. John 14, 17. In fact, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity, will come and make their home in them. John 14, 23. The implication here is clearly that of companionship. Just as Jesus was present physically with his close disciples during his earthly ministry, he was their close companion and friend in the same way Jesus will continue to be their companion and friend through the mediation of the paraclete slash spirit. Paraclete will teach them and remind them of the truths that Jesus taught. John 14.26 Again, the presence of Jesus as teacher will be continued by the spirit in a different form when Jesus is no longer present. By the spirit, Jesus will give the disciples peace and comfort, John 14, 27, when they are experiencing fear and persecution for their witness to him. He'll give them the peace and comfort. The paraclete will testify, testify about the true identity of Jesus, John 15, 26. He will be continuing the disciples' witness to Jesus begun during their earthly ministry, giving them the words to say, when they are called to stand before governors and kings. That's, you know, Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. 
The paraclete, Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and empower the disciples' witness to produce repentance from sin and true conversion. John, you know, John 16:8 or Acts 2:37. They were cut to the heart. First Thessalonians 1:5 says, "Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction." In his first epistle, John writes that if a believer sins, we have an advocate with the Father, one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He says that in 1 John 2.1. What Jesus does, interceding with God for believers, the Spirit, paraclete, also does. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with wisdom and deep emotion, with groans that word can't express. Romans 8.26 The paraclete is heard by the Father, for the Spirit intercedes for us in agreement with the will of God. Romans 8.27 Jesus' teaching about the personality of the Spirit as paraclete can be summarized that the Holy Spirit slash paraclete is the continuing representative or deputy of the presence, peace, pedagogy, and power of the face and person of Jesus. Now the Spirit is like the alter ego or a twin brother Jesus. He represents Jesus and makes him spiritually present to us. The disciples literally saw the human face of Christ when they were with him during the days of his earthly ministry. And the Holy Spirit continues to make the face and presence of Christ real and vivid in their memory and experience. Jesus is still with them by his Spirit. The actions of the earthly Jesus with a human face are now continued by the Holy Spirit with the spiritual face of the Helper sent by Jesus to be his continuing presence with them. <clears throat> now the terms, as I said before, that best encompass a variety of ministries <clears throat> excuse me, performed by the Spirit slash paraclete are advocate, helper, comforter, and counselor. Excuse me for a minute. Now, the second major obstacle to thinking of the Spirit in personal terms is the nature of the images of the Spirit found in Scripture itself. You know, as I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is revealed in the images of water, wind, fire, and dove. You know, unlike Father and Son, these images seem to imply that the third person of the Trinity is impersonal, subpersonal. Water, wind, fire, and doves don't have the traits of human intelligence, self-consciousness, emotions, and will that we associate with human persons. I need, you know. Now, there's two sets of distinctions that can help to overcome this obstacle: a distinction between personal status and personal actions, a distinction, and two, a distinction between intrinsic or essential qualities and accidental or non-essential qualities. First of all, terms such as wind, fire, water, and dove are statements not about the personal status of the Holy Spirit, but they're about the personal actions and qualities of the Holy Spirit. The same is the case for the Father and Son. When God is described as a rock or as a consuming fire, 
That doesn't mean that God is not personal or impersonal. But rather it means God is a solid foundation for the believer. He's a rock and a holy God whose nature is antithetical to all sin. He's a consuming fire. And when Jesus, the incarnate son, is pictured as the Lion of Judah, or Lamb of God, or the true vine, that doesn't mean Jesus' son is impersonal. Rather, Christ is portrayed with the strength and kingliness of a lion, the gentleness and purity of a sacrificial lamb, and the life-giving fruitfulness of a vine. The understanding of wind, fire, water, and dove is personal action to scriptures, rather than personal status descriptors, is consistent with the variety of biblical statements that clearly attribute personal status to the Spirit, mind, emotion, and will. The Holy Spirit calls and commissions Paul and Barnabas to missionary service. As the church at Antioch was worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's Acts 13.2. The Holy Spirit gives power and conviction to Paul's preaching of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 and specifically directs Paul and his companions on this second missionary journey in Acts chapter 6, 16 verse 7 where it says they tried to enter Bithynia but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. You know, the Holy Spirit reminds the disciples of Jesus' teachings and illuminates those teachings with deeper understanding. In John, that's John 14, 26. We talked about that earlier. The Holy Spirit guides believers who are sons and daughters of God are led by the Spirit. Romans 8, 14 in their daily lives. The Holy Spirit inspires sincere verbal confessions of Jesus as Lord in genuine conversion experiences. 1 Corinthians 12.3 The Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts to believers as He determines. 1 Corinthians 12.11 The Spirit prays for and with believers in accordance with the will of God. Who knows the mind of the Spirit? Romans 8.27 the Holy Spirit has emotions and can be grieved by the sins of believers, Ephesians 4.30. The Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts, Romans 5.5, 5, and imparts joy, Luke 10.21 and Romans 14.17. And joy which is intrinsic to the being of God and a mark of God's favor and presence, Psalm 16.11. Now, the images of wind, fire, water, and dove, then, you know, they're properly understood to refer to the actions and qualities of the person of the Holy Spirit. Like wind, the Spirit is invisible, but it has powerful effects. Like wind, the Spirit is mysterious, unpredictable, and uncontainable. Like wind, the Spirit is a source of renewable energy, and can bring a sense of refreshment and renewal. Like fire, the Spirit imparts the warmth of God's love, the purity of God's holiness, and the light and understanding of God's truth. 
The Spirit is like refreshing, life-giving water, which Christ gives his people to drink. 1 Corinthians 12:13, where Paul writes, We were all given the one Spirit to drink. You can look at John 7, 7 verses 37 to 39 in, in, in light of that. Like a dove, the Spirit is harmless, life-affirming, and a sign of God's covenant of peace and new creation. Genesis 8, verses 8 to 12, after the flood. Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17. Jesus' baptism as beloved son or second Adam. You know, next consider examples of the second set of distinctions between intrinsic or the essential qualities and the accidental qualities. Now, the images of God as rock or fire convey essential qualities of God's personal character. You know, by his very nature, God's like a rock in his eternal self-existence. His stability, unwavering faithfulness to his covenant promises and people. By his very nature, God is like fire in his immutable sin-burning holiness and in the warmth of his love. Now, on the other hand, images or emblems of human organizations or sports teams are arbitrary and conventional. They have no intrinsic connection to the people on that team. For example, emblem of the NFL football team, the Chicago Bears, does not imply that the players are not people. They're not, or they're not human beings. They just happen to have a strong and aggressive animal for a mascot. Their team name is an identity marker that makes it easier to distinguish one team among others in its class. And by contrast, the images of the Holy Spirit are not arbitrary or accidental. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is intrinsically powerful energetic, unpredictable, refreshing, warm, life-giving, and illuminator, and teaches of God's truth. The biblical images of the Spirit are both identity markers of the Spirit and descriptors of the Spirit's personal qualities and redemptive work. Let's consider a thought experience experiment to make the images of the Holy Spirit more personal. First, we can recall various ways that Pericles has been translated in English versions of the Bible. It's advocate in the New International Version and the New Living uh, Translation. Translated as counselor in the, the uh, Revised Standard Version. He's a helper in the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible. And he's a comforter in the King James Version. Now, these could be seen as job descriptions of the Spirit. These actions, advocating or interceding, counseling, helping, comforting, or encouraging, all actions of a personal agent. They're not some impersonal force. They're all actions of Jesus on earth. Now, the Spirit, the alter ego, or envoy, or deputy who represents Jesus, is sent by Jesus from heaven to continue his ministry on earth. These actions of the Spirit are very positive, caring, and helpful. And so should reinforce positive associations and images in our mind when we think about the Holy Spirit. Now recall images of the Spirit and the personal actions and qualities they represent. 
wind, which is new energy, sense of refreshment, fire, warmth of God's love and comfort, water, life, fruitfulness, growth, then dove, connotes peacefulness, harmlessness. Remember, those are not statements about personal status, but statements about personal actions and qualities. The personal spirit in his role as advocate or counselor or helper or comforter acts not only with competence, but also with a bedside manner that brings new strength and refreshment, the warmth of God's love and peace to those who are being helped. You know, in thinking about the Holy Spirit, the images of tongues of fire at Pentecost and the dove descending at Jesus' baptism tend to fill our, our, our imagination. And John's paraclete you know, is kind of at the margins. Now, the point of the thought experiment is to place the Holy Spirit as helper or advocate, counselor, comforter, but put him at the center of our biblically informed imagination with the personal qualities around that center. See, our imaginations need to be retrained to see spiritually that the Holy Spirit is very personal so that we can apply a human-like face to him. Now the final step is to connect these biblical job descriptions of the Spirit with vocations or professions in our modern world. As an example of advocate, think of the best lawyer that has ever served you, or the best lawyer you've ever heard of, one not only highly competent in the law, but very personable in manner. For counselor, think of the best counselor or therapist you have ever experienced. Knowledgeable, wise, patient, highly empathetic, a good listener. For helper, take an example the best nurse who has ever helped you. That nurse is well trained medically. They're attentive, patient, and kind. They're a good listener constantly at your bedside, helping you with your medications, advocating for your best interest with the doctor and hospital staff. Can you remember such a nurse? Can you still see the nurse's face in your mind's eye? Could you perhaps even remember their name? Then, you know, if so, by way of analogy, of analogy, begin a new way of seeing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a real person, a real helper and friend with a smiling face that brings us encouragement and hope in our times of weakness and distress. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Number 6, 25 to 26. And Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Now the argument that there's biblical justification for thinking of the Holy Spirit as having a human-like face may seem contrary to the commandment against making graven images in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Well, you Several replies can be offered to that objection. First of all, the biblical teaching that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. 
Now, I said beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, and it implies that human beings reflect the nature of God. Now, there's a real analogy between the natures of God and man. They do not exclude the body and visible form. In the Old Testament, the God of Israel becomes incarnate in a human body in a couple of places, but the prophet Ezekiel, in his vision of the heavenly throne room, sees seated above the throne a figure like that of a man, Ezekiel 1.26. Now, human forms have distinct faces. And though the God of the Old Testament didn't regularly manifest during the Old Covenant in a physical body, his favorable presence is signified as previously mentioned in facial imagery. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Number 6, 25-26 The second and perhaps the most powerful theological basis for thinking of God and by implication the Holy Spirit as being revealed through faith is the incarnation itself. The Son of God assumed a complete human nature. He had a real human body with a recognizable face. You know, the Gospels don't give us a description of what he looked like. But his disciples saw his face throughout his ministry, surely remembered it after he ascended to heaven. And before he left, Jesus promised the disciples he was going to send another counselor paraclete to be with them forever. That word another, as I said earlier, implies that this spirit will be with them as Jesus himself was, continuing his redemptive work, causing them to remember the face of Jesus and his teaching. The God of both the Old and New Covenants chose to manifest grace and peace through a shining glorious face, and it's fitting that we think of the distinct personhood of all three co-equal persons of the Trinity because they all impart grace, comfort, and peace to us with the help of such facial imagery. Thank you. This is the perfect puzzle.